So when did it start for you? When did this little idea plan itself in your head that you wanted to direct movies? Was it when you saw a film? Was it when you watched Jurassic Park? Was it when uh, your parents got a video camera and your dad handed it to you and said, how does this work? Make this thing work. Was it when you were just going to the movies and looking around at the other people and how this flickering light, how this two-dimensional image on a screen was causing the people to yell and scream and cry? Um, is it because you have these experiences that you've gone through that you feel like other people need to hear? Are you looking for reasons? Are you looking for the purpose? Are you looking for, for answers? Uh, there are a lot of good reasons to start. There's a lot of good excuses to become a filmmaker. Um, and just go back, take a second. For those of you that are trying to get into this business, and maybe it isn't filmmaking, maybe it's something else. You guys have this big goal, this long time, long running goal that you need to sort of get to. You got to get through. Ask yourself, why is it that I want to do this thing? You know, and then can you project yourself in the future? Can you imagine what it's going to be like to finally get to that point? Can you imagine what it's going to be like when you finally make your first feature film? Uh, can you imagine what it's like to do your second film? It's, it's so fascinating how as a species we have this ability to project these thoughts and to think ahead and to see the future and uh, to, to see a goal and chase it hard and push for it. Um, this is stuff I think about all the time. Uh, you know, being a director and, and doing this stuff for like 19 years and, and really pushing hard to finally make that feature film and to make that first feature. And there are moments where it feels like it's, it's, it's just about to happen. And there are moments it feels like it's, it's miles and miles away. Um, and whenever I get the opportunity to talk to somebody who to talk to somebody who has just done it uh, and done it successfully, I cannot be happier. I cannot wait to to ask questions because it's this it's this thing that we're all chasing, you know. And I, I just want to know what it feels like. I want to know uh, how you feel when you go through it. I want to know how you feel afterwards. And I know you guys feel the same way. And that's why I'm really excited about today's episode. Um, on today's episode is a, uh, a new director. And I say, only say new director because to the public eye, he's a new director, but this guy has been busting his ass, uh, for years, uh, born and bred in Australia and, uh, hometown hero, as far as like setting up a business and, and working where he grew up, uh, very similar story and, and a career path to mine, which I found to be, uh, very sort of an admirable and inspiring of course because you know i'm going through the same thing um but uh he's uh, really great and for uh those of you uh who have heard of this service called netflix <laughs> those of you millions and millions of people who have heard of this service called netflix have uh, most likely seen his film and if you haven't seen his film then you've seen the thumbnail for his film that you uh put on your queue and you'll eventually get to uh, I even think that when Netflix goes into standby mode and uh, the screensaver starts up, uh, you'll eventually see uh, 
the poster work for his film. Uh, it's a, a little film called I Am Mother, right? And uh, for those of you who don't know, the premise of the movie, it's, it's basically uh, about a robot that raises a baby um, after the world has come to an end. Um, so it's really kind of cool. It fits into the whole James Cameron, uh, Ridley Scott universe. Uh, it's a movie that surprised me because I wasn't ex 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 expecting it to rise to the caliber that it does. Um, the level of craftsmanship on this film is amazing. Uh, and then I was once again surprised to hear that it was Weta. So uh, all the effects were done by Weta Workshop. Peter Jackson's face, which is amazing. Um, and I thought that the tone of the movie was fantastic, um, which says a lot. And I'm the first one to come out and say that I feel like a lot of movies are, are missing that that director's voice and that tone. Um, but our guest today definitely has it. And uh, after watching this movie, I'm completely fascinated with his career. And I cannot wait to hear or watch what he has uh, coming out next. Um, our guest is none other than director Grant Spatore. Um, he has been a commercial director for years, uh, has his own commercial company. Um, he has done uh, short films and worked on some other projects. If you go to his IMDb, you can go through and see. But he's got a pretty small, uh, pretty early on uh, directing career, which I love. And to see this success story and to hear how... Um, a first-time director is able to get a movie like this greenlit that is very effects heavy um, and also uh, cast such a an a-list actor a high quality actor with a hillary swank um, all these questions are just uh, burning inside me i cannot wait i cannot wait to ask him this stuff um and i just want to take a minute and thank you guys for tuning into the show i uh, missed you if you noticed last week, I wasn't around. Uh, and a lot of you are like, but Mike, you've promised. You promised us that you would be there through all of this with us. And you would continue to make content for free. <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is, guys, that I needed last week to uh, really sort of sit down and focus on prep for one of the movies. Uh, and I needed that time to do storyboard work. So you guys can, you know, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> because <laughs> uh, i've always said a filmmaker first podcaster second um and that's kind of what i needed last week but i didn't want to leave you high and dry and uh i got liam liam stepped up to the plate and did a really cool best of recap episode uh good work liam i know you're listening as you cut this episode uh i cannot wait to give you some shit for how nervous you were <laughs> doing your reads i thought it was cute and adorable and hey guess what uh it's hard to do this stuff right <laughs> uh not anybody could just host a podcast my friend um but i am super happy and very impressed with what you were able to pull together for that show um and we had a bunch of listeners on it so the fans did like it um i will say that business is back to normal uh, I am in the current process right now of booking a lot of uh, really great guests this week. Um, so expect the show to have some heavy hitters, hopefully. Fingers fucking crossed. Um, and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode. As promised, I told you I was going to finally get a chef on the show. And Brian is a great guy. 
him and I were able to work together on the Dale Strong stuff, which I think I will now be releasing. I think I finally got the approval to start releasing that content. So uh, you'll be seeing that stuff, or you would have seen that stuff uh, last week. Uh, of course, I'm recording this in the middle of that. So time time travel is a weird fucking thing, guys. Um, so uh, yeah, thank you for all of that stuff. And a bunch of big thanks all the way around to the people that continue to support the show. Uh, big thanks to those of you who have written to me asking to see 12 Kilometers, to see my film on Instagram. I have been trying to hook up uh, as many of you guys as possible. And for those of you who don't know, what I'm now doing is... I am asking you, in order to see my film, you have to write to me on Instagram and give me your three favorite horror movies. And then don't be surprised when I hit you back with an email that asks for a donation for this show. I feel like um, giving uh, to the show helps us continue, helps me be able to afford all the expenses required to make this show happen. Um, and it's a small little price to pay uh, in order to see a movie, which you know hopefully you guys are gonna dig. Um, and for those of you who are like, well, how dare you charge to see a movie? I'm not just charging. I'm giving you a bunch of different options. You could sign up for our Audible free trial. So if you sign up for the Audible free trial, it costs you fucking nothing. You'll get 30 days of Audible uh, for free. It comes with a free um, audio book. Uh, and after those 30 days, if you don't want to stick around, if you feel like you need to save your funds or maybe you don't like it, you can cancel. Uh, I guarantee you're probably going to want to stick around because there's a bunch of stuff that you're going to want to listen to. But if you cancel, we still get paid. And it's such a great way to give a donation to the show. And it's the cheat code. It's the fucking cheat code because it doesn't cost you anything. Um, so for those of you who are going to complain, well, why are you charging to see your short film? I'm not. I'm giving you the opportunity to donate to the show for free. Right? So relax. <laughs> um... So, uh, yeah, and uh, let's see, what else is going on? I hope you guys are staying healthy. I hope you guys are staying sane. And uh, uh, we're pushing through the first month of our lockdown. Um, and uh, tune in uh, Fridays as we do our second episode, which is our COVID, how to stay motivated, how to stay sane episodes. And uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, and, uh, you guys have really been responding to that stuff. And I, I just want to say that I appreciate that you guys come to us for inspiration, that you guys come to us for a bit of solace. Um, and, uh, we appreciate it. We really do. And we're, you know, I, everybody's saying this shit. We're all in this together. And blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, it's true. We are. We're all in this together. Each and every one of us on this planet are dealing with it. But there's so many really interesting things going on right now with how people are entertaining themselves and how people are entertaining other people. Uh, whether it's live streaming uh, stuff or whether it's like watching movies as a group together, um, which I just recently did, actually. And uh, we did sort of like a beta test where we were watching an old film together with a bunch of my friends. So those of you who... Uh, we're part of that. Thanks for being a part of it. We will continue to do so. I might open it up to some of the listeners of the show. I'll let you guys know, but uh, we've been doing our own little uh, private little screenings of movies that we like uh, and talking about it online. So there's a bunch of different ways that you should uh, stay connected with your friends um, and still do things socially together. And I hope you guys are doing so and staying healthy. But that being said, Thank you for listening to the show. Our numbers have been at an all-time high. And it's because you guys are telling your friends 
uh, and families to listen to us and continue to do so. Brag about it. You are one of the first to find us. You're in our club. Tell people about it. Brag about it. Say that, like, why have you not been listening to the show? It's on episode, what are we on now? Episode 78. I've heard all 77 of these shows before you even knew they existed. You should brag about that. Maybe I'll make a t-shirt that says that you're the shit because you guys are the shit. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Ranting and raving and, and rambling on. I think it's time to get to the show so you know the deal. Go grab them. Grab those noise-canceling headphones. Where's that place in your house? Where's that spot that you listen to podcasts? Where's that place that you get away from everybody else? You're going to go sit out in the car in the driveway for two hours? Do it. It sounds better on the sound system in there. But anyway, grab those noise-canceling headphones. Sit back and relax and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Hey, Grant, thanks for being on the show, my man. Thank you for having me. I was saying offline that uh, I was a huge fan of your film, I Am Mother. Um, you know what? I'll say it on the record. <laughs> there's so much stuff on Netflix that I, I kind of feel like is boring, or there's a lot of stuff that's being released right now that teases uh, that it's going to be really cool. And uh, I was very happy with how your film came together, and I was very happy that uh, it lived up to what the trailers were, were hyping it to be. So. Oh, well, thank you, mate. Yeah, yeah man. I mean, it's such an incredible uh, spectrum of stuff available on Netflix. There really is something for everyone. Uh, and that's the great thing for our, for our movie because we made it independently. We didn't expect to find this this global multi, multi many multi-millions of people finding the, the film the way that they have. But it, it has meant that, you know, we really have found the I Am Mother super fans out there in the world. You know, I get this constant stream of fan art coming my way and people write <laughs> to me and tell me it's their favorite film. And I'm like, have you seen Blade Runner? Like, you should. <laughs> I mean, I'm stoked that you love it. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, it would be among my favorite films if I hadn't made it, but it probably wouldn't be my favorite film. I mean, Jurassic Park's pretty great. <laughs> It's very true. And it's funny how you're referencing, besides that, it's funny how you're referencing these movies from our past. I think uh, there is a big void right now in like really good artist-driven sci-fi content that is really good. Um, it's tricky just because of the budget that those things can need, you know? Like I hope with yeah. I Am Other we showed that not every sci-fi story needs a, a huge budget, but, you know, you can't make Jurassic Park on the cheap. Um, no. And, and they unfortunately fall into that zone that's hard to finance these days. But Netflix seem to be playing with every um, arena when it comes to the b budgets. So hopefully they remember, oh, you know what? People like mid-budget and high-budget sci-fi as well as uh, low-budget sci-fi. Yeah. And it's fast. Okay, so I was going to ask you about that. So you guys did this film independently and then Netflix just acquired it because I saw that you guys went to Sundance. That's it. right. Yeah, so the, it's it's an Australian film, even though you can't really tell when you watch the movie. It's obviously set in a time that is post nation states, um, mm -hmm. but uh, you know the 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 idea comes from Australia, was developed in Australia, and the film was shot in Australia. And then, fortunately, we got into Sundance, and Netflix saw the film there, and they 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 bought 
they bought it. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty awesome, man. And and then how did you get, was it just independently financed or was it financed through uh, the Australian government? Like how did you guys get the loot to be able to pull it off? Yeah, we're super lucky down in Australia because we have such a government supported system. Uh, there's an incredible tax rebate program called the Producers Offset, which will give basically any film that has secured theatrical distribution in Australia um, 40% of its budget back in tax credits. Wow. Uh, and then on top of that, we have both federal and state level uh, direct investment in in filmmaking. It's very competitive to get that money, but um, yeah. you know it, it is real money that goes into the the making of your film. So most of the money to make the project came via those means. But we did get um, international financing as well. Like uh, we did pre sales, and we also had a, a private investor come in and contribute too. So um, it's very hard. You know, like in one breath, you can say. Uh, it's so, we're so fortunate to, to have those systems of support down there in Australia, but it is very hard to get films made in Australia because Australian films don't really benefit from the world when it comes to an audience. Like mm. um, people that are listening to this podcast outside of Australia, uh, you know, probably are thinking to themselves, yeah, but I saw Animal Kingdom um, or <laughs> I saw Chopper, um, both great films, but, you know, that year there was probably 20 to 30 Australian films made and you saw one of them. You know, you, you only really see the, the cream of the crop outside of the country. Um, so for most Australian films, you need to find a way to justify the budget with just the Australian audience um, watching. Uh, but with I Am Mother, we were very much trying to find an international audience and we're thankful that Netflix sort of stepped up and made that possible. That's amazing, dude. It's it's such a – and this is what I'm fascinated by because um, we talked briefly offline about this, but I have two movies that are in development right now and trying to get that stuff up and running and being in development with major companies, and it's still difficult to get things up and running, which blows my mind sometimes. Oh, man, it's um, so hard. Oh, my God, dude. And I think a lot of people don't realize that our viewers at home, that even if you watch a movie that is uh, mediocre, if you watch a movie that maybe makes 20% on, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's still a fucking miracle That's that the right. thing got made to begin with. Oh, well, yeah. You know, you can't really watch and judge films the same way that you used to once you've made one, I think, or once you've tried mm -hmm. to, to make one. Like, just the logistics in, as you say, getting it up to the point that it is even in some form of production is a miracle. And then to, to have it actually turn out well is 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 a miracle too it takes a lot of hard work from a lot of people but you can be sunk by any number of things that are outside of your control oh, um, yeah so it's uh yeah it's it is as you say a straight up miracle when things get made at all or especially when they turn out well well what was the steps for you like <clears throat> did you guys well there's a couple questions here so uh, what was the, it, you don't have to tell, I always feel like when I ask, what was the budget of your film? I feel like I'm walking into a kitchen and asking a chef what he put in there for, yeah. for spices. So have you, did you guys release what the budget for the film was? Can you talk about that? You know, I don't really know what the final, final figure was. I had a great team of producers who, who you know, shielded me from that to some extent, even though I am a producer. Actually, look, to be fair, I get sent the cost reports and, uh, and all of that. I could look if I wanted to, but fortunately, <laughs> I get to turn off that part of my brain just because... I, I trust the producers in, implicitly, but um, I, I, you know, I think it came in. It's tricky with the exchange rates because it keeps fluctuating so much. But it was about once upon a time we used to be able to say that it was about five million US. Yeah, uh, but yeah, obviously yeah. that goes a bit further um, in Australia because the the dollar is so cheap. I, I think it was like nine, eight or nine million Australian, basically. 
Okay, and so then that makes sense because this this is your first feature uh, credit as a director, correct? Yes. Yeah. See, it's a fascinating because I'm also in this world. I'm in the sci-fi horror world as well, and so I run into the same sort of ceiling where it's like you got to make it for under five million if you want to do it, being that you are quote unquote a first time director. And it's ah, like, uh, uh, so so tricky. The answer to your problem is come make it in Australia, dude. That's, that's yeah, I know it sounds that way. Yeah, <laughs> it really does, man. It sounds that way. The, um, you know, it's just it's it's. Uh, I, I can see both sides of it. You know, like. The, it's a huge risk to make a film and like we said like uh the odds are stacked against any film turning out well so people just want to mitigate their risk and then make sure that the 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 price is as low as possible so they've got the greatest chance of getting that money back but of course you hamstring the filmmaker by it's that much harder to make a great film especially in the sci-fi space with a limited budget Mm -hmm. Um, people Mm -hmm. would ask me you know because the irony is like that sounds like a um in the ambitious world of sci-fi, you know, that's it's it's not a lot of money. But in Australia, that's we were actually quite a large movie because most Australian films, uh, you know, don't get a budget that large. Um, and people would ask, you know, like, are you nervous about, you know, tackling something of this size in the sense that it's big? Uh, you know, yeah. and most Australian films are, you know, people are fighting over the kitchen sink or, you know, robbing banks or something like that um and i said no well not really you know like the the extra the, the extra money is just hiring extra people to help you um mm. you know the extra money means you get better people and you can have better props and all that sort of stuff look this is all on a spectrum of course because you know one of the most frequent comments i see on youtube videos talking about i am mother or you know whenever i do q a's is that a lot of people are like yeah i am mother could teach high budget filmmakers like that you don't need a ton of money to make something good. It's like, ugh, like everything. It's kind of the, the truth is somewhere in between, you know. Sure. You know, the, the, certainly having less money forces you to be more creative and and gives you nowhere to hide. Um, you know, your story has to be good. Your characters have to be good for anybody to pay attention to you. Whereas if you have a lot of money, you can make something that's more bombastic, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know what? I'm going to go even further with that statement and say I also think that. It's tonally good. And I think that one of the things that is lacking from a lot of the larger stuff right now is that there really isn't a singular vision. There isn't a tone that we that we remember from all the greats. Like you go back and you think about like uh, James Cameron's work in Terminator. James Cameron, his, his fucking voice is all over that. Yep. And you know that his ideas weren't being filtered down by a committee of people that are deciding on whether or not these things are interesting. Um, and I, I think that... And this is me saying risky stuff, and you don't necessarily need to agree with it. But I think that the committee, filmmaking by committee, that's been happening more and more these days because uh, we are facing or we are getting financed by corporations. You know what I mean? We're getting financed by big business. And coming from the world of commercial directing, it feels very similar where, you know, you'd walk into a room full of creatives or full of executives and sit there and they would all give you your notes specifically on something. And then at the end of it, when you're doing a commercial, you sort of look at it and go, well, my fucking voice isn't even in this goddamn thing. Okay, fine, you know, pay me. Uh, It's interesting. It's been like an interesting training ground because I, you know, my background is in commercials as well. And it's definitely its own skill. It's its own sport. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, some people are good at navigating that, minefield uh and others less so you know like i have directorial friends who are straight up geniuses but just don't have the patience necessary to run that gauntlet 
yeah. and then you know I have other guys that are like Jedi masters who uh, can Jedi mind trick creatives into seeing eye to eye. It's seeing it their way, and um, yeah, it's a real skill to be able to kind of get your vision through that process. And 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 I say all of that not you know not with the assumption that those people are, are aren't trying to make the project bad, you know, or um, are bad at their jobs. Like, you know, no, especially no, no, in the commercial all. sphere, those guys are really working hard to make sure that this isn't like a, a self-important wanky art piece, <laughs> you know, when really we're here to sell a car or we're here to sell a can of soda. Like it's got to work, you know, and, and yes. theoretically that's what your studio executives are doing too. Like they're like, this has got to work for the audience. They've, the audience has got to walk out of here and want to tell their friends to come and see this or, you know, um, so on. It's got to get an emotional reaction from the viewer and that sort of stuff. So, um, look, it's 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 tricky. It's tricky to get all those pieces working together. I mean, that's why it's so important to have the right producers and be working with the right studio that wants to make the same film that, that you do. Yeah, exactly. And really it comes down to, uh, at least from my perspective, it seems to come down to what your initial... Uh, really, if you can get them on board with your initial concept if, and your mood boards and all your initial pitch, it's trying to align those people very early on with what your vision is and to see if you guys can all sort of agree on that. Because I say this on the show all the time, if you hand somebody a script, like 10 people will read the script and see it 10 different ways uh, because everybody has their own little you know, filmmaker in their mind when they're reading through stuff like that. And so... I think it's oftentimes really important for a director to right off the bat come out and go, this is what the tone is and this is the tone that I've designed. So as you're reading through this or after you've read through this, this is what I'm thinking. And do you guys agree with me or not? Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's interesting shit. So let's, let's talk a bit more about how you started. So you are a commercial director as well. How did you get into the business initially? So I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, which is about as far from where I'm living now in LA as you can get. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I grew up loving movies. Like it was uh, the coolest thing that the world had to offer. And I, for the longest of time, I thought they were sort of bequeathed by the gods handed down on stone tablets or something. But then I realized <laughs> at some point, like, oh, people like make these and like this is a, this is a job and wait, we've got a home video camera. Like I could use that to, to, to make stuff. So I started off like so many cliched filmmakers you know, making short films with uh, action figures and then progressed to doing it with my friends and that turned into uh, studying filmmaking uh, at high school and then university where you start getting in acting students and really flirting with making something half decent and watchable. And when I graduated from film school, I had a choice like everybody does from my hometown. Like, do you move over east or to America or somewhere where there actually is a real commercially viable film industry? Or do you try and make a run for it in, a, in, in our home small town and try and be the big fish in the small pond? Mm -hmm. And in particular, you know, we had a state um, funding aid agency that had a, a a first-time filmmaker's grant where you could make a first film for $750,000 and then using that um, tax rebate I mentioned, you could turn that into like a $1.4 million feature. And it, that, that felt like a really tangible, achievable goal. 
And so I was like, all right, well, let's hang around Perth and like, you know, my network of friends here, my, my, um, my, you know, the crew I like to work with and Noah here. So like, let's just see where this goes. And I started a company with a mate from university and I still run that business today called the Penguin Empire. And we yes. started out just making music videos or anything that, you know, we could get our hands on that excited us or paid something. And then over, you know, a couple of years that transitioned into being a, TV commercial production company and we started to find a lot of success doing that we won we won a bunch of awards and uh, attracted other filmmakers that we admired to come and work with us because they had the faith that this was a business that cared about making quality work you know not just um, Mm -hmm. paying the bills like we wanted to make stuff that we could all be proud of Uh, and so you know the, the company kept growing and we started to make some decent money and then I basically reinvested that money in a in a drama side of the business. Like we hired a director of development who was Michael Green, the, the writer of I Am Mother. Um, we'd met at a short film festival here in Palm Springs, California, uh, and we just hit it off. We loved the same movies and we wanted to find some way to work together and it was around that time the business was doing well enough that I said like, hey, well, do you want to work from my for my company you can do it remotely uh you can stay here in america and we'll just you know work on scripts together and uh you can work with the other directors in the company to try and get projects going for them and we tried for years actually uh we worked for years on another project it was a western and mm-hmm. it really was our like hard uh, school of hard knocks when it came to like commercial filmmaking and getting films made because we were absolutely just pursuing our heart's desire. We were like, oh, if we make a great script, then then this film will get made. Right. And what we realized is that that's absolutely not true. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how good your script is on its own. It's got to be financeable. It's got to be um, achievable. And it's got to be something that the marketplace can substantiate that there's a need for. Right. Um, and we basically picked the most toxic genre (laughs) so (laughs) needless to say our western did not get made um but you know we had a real dark night of the soul after that because i'd spent a lot of money paying michael to work on that script and others uh and we'd we'd attached really significant producers we had academy award-winning producers on that project um but none of it changed just the the fundamentals of like the thinking behind the the project um and we we loved that project uh, and so to have to put that aside, I found myself wondering like, oh, like, why am I doing this? Like, um, either commercial stuff is going really well. Why don't I throw myself fully into that? But when I stopped and thought about it for any length of time, I was like, it really, you know, as much as I genuinely do love making commercials and I want to keep doing that, um, the real reason I'm here and, and making stuff is because I love movies and I just mm-hmm. doubled down. And, you know, we licked our wounds and we, f- and we focused on what we learned. And I Am Mother was very much explicitly designed to be a first film that we could actually get made, you know, contained three characters, one location, all that good advice that's out there on the internet. We finally listened to it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, the irony is that we totally came up with something that we loved even more than the project that we were working on before and was even more true to... The, the kinds of films that we wanted to make like um yeah i don't have i i do enjoy a western you know like i've got unforgiven and magnificent seven and 
yeah. a bunch of westerns on my Blu-ray shelf, but they are far outnumbered by uh, true sci-fi and um, you know robot films. Uh, so I was like, <laughs> you know, it, it all worked out well. And in fact, when we were on set shooting, I am mother, like Michael and I, turned to each other and said, "Man, I'm." pretty stoked to be in this air-conditioned studio right now and not in the middle of the Australian outback in the blazing sun racing the sunset to get this shot of a horse, you know, <laughs> jumping this ravine. Like, this is a, a much better place to start. So it all it all worked out well in the end, at least thus far. I, it's really nice to hear your story because, honestly, man, our stories parallel each other. I, I did the same thing. I grew up in Boston and uh, stayed in, in that city and, and started my own production company and did the whole th- same thing, man. So it's nice to hear another filmmaker going through that and successfully going through that, which is really good. Um, you just got to keep the faith. Is like, you know, again, it's another one of those bits of internet wisdom that's totally out there. But I think it's always nice to hear for those people that are struggling through it because I've been there um, and you want to hear that reassurance that, look, success is on the other side of failure and it's only achievable if you keep going through failure. And and I and I need to remind myself of that all the too. time. Yeah, all of the time. Like <laughs> yeah. because no no filmmaker has a, a, a career filled with you know home runs one after another. Um yeah. yeah. No, and there's something really at least for me, when I when I was feeling a lot of rejection and a lot of uh, you know not regret but just worry like am i doing the right fucking thing and then you actually go through and you look at all the directors that we love and that we admire and it's like yeah they've they've all been through this they've all lost this stuff i mean how many unproduced screenplays did guillermo del toro make you know and how many heartbreaks has he been through trying to get movies greenlit so uh everybody everybody deals with it regardless of the size that you are regardless of whether you're starting or whether you've been in unfortunately whether you've been in the business for 30 years you know yeah um it's a highly competitive marketplace and breaking through that that competitive marketplace is such a such an amazing thing and if you sometimes i feel like longevity is king if you can just survive if you can just continue to put things out if you can just continue to show people that you're a storyteller and that you love to tell stories then eventually it'll come around and it'll hit you as long as you can make it as long as you can make it through that desert, essentially, you know? These are the big questions uh, and certainly ones I'm grappling with now, you know, like what, what, what's worth pursuing and, and what gives, you know, to get really existential and wanky, like what will give your life meaning? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm uh, looking at scripts now, like huge piles of scripts. Unfortunately, once you get your first film made, suddenly the doors open and people start sending, sending you stuff. Um and trying to work out like what's the right second project, you know, is mm-hmm. it the one that you know you really just want to fight to get made, or is it the one that will get made? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know how how long will people be interested in seeing your second film? Like, how quickly do you need to capitalize on the interest that you might have generated coming out of your first film versus how quickly will they lose interest in you if your second film isn't good? So. Yeah, the, uh, it's it's interesting, you know, I've spent the majority of my life getting to this point grappling with more or less the same questions, you know, like how will I get my chance at bat? Like how will I get to make my first film? And then you you crash through that threshold into a, a whole new set of problems, which is like <laughs> how what's the right second movie? Will this thing even happen, you know? And then I'm sure it'll it just it never goes away. So I you know the the title of your 
podcast is 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 brilliant, man. Like I think that that is the only true central thing that you can come back to, which is like, yeah, you've got to enjoy the process because there's no guarantee of the result, whether that's the film getting made at all or that the film turns out well. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, mm-hmm. you just you just got to do the day in day out, do the work. That's the mantra. And when you were saying like, I'm looking for when you're getting existential, you're totally allowed to on the show, brother, because. <laughs> Uh, it's the truth of it. I mean, the podcast title came for me, and I've talked about this on the show, so I won't get too in-depth with it, but for me, it, it just, I hit a realization before almost dying. I actually had a head injury, and I was in intensive care, and I almost I almost dropped. And it, so you sort of hit this realization where prior to that, my life was sort of, if I looked back at my life, I'd look at these little flag posts that were set up along the way where it was like, ah, back in 2000, I did that project and I did this project and I did that project. And I just, there was huge gaps in my life where I'm like, what the fuck did I do in between those? And uh, from that point on, it was like, look, I really love this whole process and I want to make sure that I'm setting up projects and I'm setting up movies that allow me to live this lifestyle that allow me to live in this process that allow me to take the people that I like to work with, with me. And, you know, cause 98% of what we do as directors is all this other shit. Like most of the time we're prepping, most of the time we're just hanging out, we're, we're, we're talking to people. Uh, and then there's this small percentage of time when you're on set and a small percentage of time when you're actually directing. Um, oh, so yeah. you, you really have to love all that other stuff. And you really have to enjoy that because that's the work. You know, that's the hard work that we do every day. And if you don't like that shit, then you shouldn't even be trying to get into this business. Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay, this is that time. This is the point where we need to take a break and thank the men and women that make this show possible, that give us access to amazing equipment, that give us cash, let's be serious about it, that give us the cash that we need to keep this show up and running. Now, before I get into their reads, I just wanna reach out to you guys and say, there are a bunch of different ways that you can support the show. Now, I know we're all in tough times right now. Uh, how many of you have got that, uh, are relying upon unemployment right now? How many of you are relying on the government uh, save my ass $1,200 check that's going to change the fucking world. All of us are in that boat. So I get it. You're like, Mike, my bank account is thin. Not a big deal. The best way that you can donate, there's a few ways you can donate to this show. If you go to inloveoftheprocess.com backslash, backslash, you fucking moron. <laughs> Let's do that again. If you go to inloveoftheprocess.com backslash sponsors, there you can either sign up for our Audible free trial now, it's important that you haven't already signed up for an Audible trial, but if you haven't done so yet, uh, sign up for it. I think it's audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. The link will be below. Sign up for the free trial. Then you'll get 30 days for free. You get a free audio book. Uh, you'll get access to all of Audible's amazing content. Uh, you'll probably get hooked like I did, and you'll start listening to stuff, and you'll have stuff to do. Um, but, uh, for each person that signs up, we get a little bit of loot and let's decide, let's say that you're like, look, I can't really afford this right now, or maybe this isn't my thing after before 30 days are up, just cancel. Um, 
You're probably not going to, though. You're probably going to stick with it. But if you have to cancel, it's not going to cost you anything. And we still get paid. So it is the best, simplest way to get cash to the show without digging into your own pocket. Now, we have other options as well. Uh, we have a credit card deal with Capital One. So if you guys are looking to get a credit card right now, if you're looking to develop your business, if you're responsible with your money, let me just reiterate, you need to be responsible with your money. If you're not, if you're someone that is behind on your payments, if you're someone that doesn't understand that credit cards can put you in a lot of fucking trouble, then don't listen to this. But otherwise, if you're looking to sign up and you've got decent credit, you can sign up on inlovewiththeprocess.com backslash sponsors. There you'll find two icons, one for a Capital One Venture card and one for a Venture One card. They both come with different options. They both have really good uh, sign-up bonuses. So signing up for these things will get you access to travel cash and travel funds. Um, and for a year, I think it's like no APR for a year, which is important right now. Uh, so if you're looking for that, sign up for those. We get a nice little chunk for people that actually go through that application process. So that's another way. If you really like the show and you're like, fuck, I need to get a credit card anyways, uh, head on over there and try that out. Um, and you can find all the specifics there. Um, so good luck to you. Uh, or you can just donate to us. If you're like, fuck, I, I'm just sitting on cash. And I have all this cash and I love these guys. Uh, you can straight donate to us on the website as well. So that's at inlovewiththeprocess.com backslash sponsors. Um, but now for the real sponsor reads, let's start with our good friends over at Puget Systems. If you're a filmmaker, a photographer, if you're a sound engineer, if you're just a gamer, maybe you're a 3D animator, um, and you need a new system, and uh, you're tired of paying high, high, high prices for the unboxing experiences of some of the more expensive systems out there, and then being trapped in their hardware configurations. You want to build a computer specifically manufactured and put together for your needs. That's the way it's supposed to be. These are fucking tools that work for us. We do not shape our stuff around what tools tell us to shape our stuff around. Remember that. Uh, go to PugetSystems.com and consider buying a PC. And I know a lot of you are like, oh my God, PCs. I don't know how that works. I've always been an Apple guy. They're the same fucking thing, guys. They're still folder-based operating systems. You're probably using the Adobe Creative Suite. There are little icons. You click on them and it's all the fucking same. The thing I actually like about PCs more than I like about Mac is that um, they're a lot more user intensive as far as like you ever you ever work in uh, like Premiere or uh, Resolve and uh, for some reason it, that autosave file gets lost in some sort of folder structure and you're hunting for it and you're like, show all hidden folder. Where the fuck is this goddamn file? It's a lot easier to navigate that stuff on a PC than it is on an Apple. Um, so go to PugetSystems.com, check them out. There you can uh, choose a baseline package based upon the software that you're going to use. Uh, so if, like if you want to build a really intense Premiere system, they'll hook you up with a baseline thing. Uh, if you want to build an After Effects system, they'll hook you up with another thing. And here's the thing, guys. Different software uh, programs require different hardware things. So if you want to build uh, an After Effects machine, you can specially build an After, After Effects machine with hardware that works for it. That's what I like about PCs. Is it's, it's like building hot rod cars. Uh, it really, you're really tweaking for the best and the most optimal performance out of hardware that is incredibly competitive 
as far as price point is concerned. Um, so you can get a lot for your buck. Uh, and the guys at Puget Systems want to hear the stuff from you. They build custom systems based upon what you need. So reach out to them. Tell them what you want. Tell them what your budget is. Tell them what you're looking for. And these guys will custom build it based upon that. Um, I can't say enough good things about them. Uh, PugetSystems.com. I just shot some stuff for their new campaign. I don't know when that stuff's going to come out, but it's really cool looking. They have some new stuff coming out. That's really cool looking. So go check them out. Also, uh, continuing to support us are the guys over at Quasar Science. Uh, Quasar Science is one of the leaders in LED technology, which is some of the coolest stuff in the movie business right now. Uh, for quite some time, everybody was pumped about what camera you were shooting on, but these days it's all about what you're using for lights. LED technology is amazing. Not only can you uh, run these lights that, as far as heat is concerned, they run much cooler, your sets are cooler, um, but they also um, can be programmed to do all sorts of colors of the rainbow. You can actually run uh, different um, pre-programmed settings through them. So like if you want cop lights, if you want strobe lights, if you want chasers, all this stuff is really cool. Um, Quasar Science has amazing LED tubes that can be programmed to daisy chain together. Um, they're an essential part of your kit. So if you're looking to uh, buy lighting, um, and you're like, Mike, what would you get? Some of these tubes, I have a bunch of these tubes. They are really great for lighting. And if you watched my Dale Strong stuff that I just did, all the close-ups of the blades that are on the black space, and I move the light over those blades, that's with a quasar tube. And I'm literally hand-holding a quasar tube, and it's the only light I'm using to do like that. Uh, almost looks like a scanner light that goes across the top of it. They are super cool. Very resilient, very cool, to, and very easy to use. Um, so go to quasarscience.com, check them out. And I know, I think they're still doing it. If you go follow them on Instagram at Quasar Science, they are giving away um, some of their light kits every week. Uh, six days ago, they just did week three for their Q-Lion Flex Kit. Um, I think you can just go to their Instagram account follow the rules and you might actually be someone that gets a fucking free kit so definitely go check them out if you go to the instagram account and you do follow their stuff just make a, a comment there that you came from in love with the process i think that's important or click through on the links below um, those guys are really great and they continue to support the show um, also uh, we got a bunch of really interesting stuff coming up we're, we're starting a team up with black magic um, and uh, I'm not going to give you guys a full read yet because we haven't talked about it, but just know that we got some interesting stuff going on with Black Magic. We're in the process of, of uh, trying to uh, videotape more of these episodes. And let me know if you guys are into that. Uh, you know, you guys want to see me talk? You guys want to see the guests? I assume so, because everybody likes to watch people sit around and talk into microphones these days. Um, yeah, so Black Magic is uh, going to be a really cool support for us. So let's see what the future holds. Uh, so that's it. Let's get back to the show. Let's, let's dig a little bit deeper here. Um, I was going to ask you about your relationship with your writer. So you guys 
ended up you met this guy and you ended up hiring him to write for you is that how the relationship started yeah so i um i made this short film uh in western australia and michael who's a florida native made a short film i guess he was at the university of florida or one of them uh Mm -hmm. and both of them got into the same film festival in palm springs he traveled from florida drove across the country i think in the process of moving to california I mm-hmm. flew from the other side of the world and and through uh, fate or chance, we both arrived at the Palm Springs Short Film Festival at exactly the same time. Uh, we were both in line for the registration counter. I was starving <laughs> based on, you know, having a 30-hour commute to get there. Uh, okay. I traveled with my producing partner on the short film and were loudly having a conversation about how starving I was and that we needed to get some quality Mexican food now that we were in the US because at the time there was no Mexican food in Australia. Um, <laughs> and so I turned to the person behind me in line and say like, hey man, do you know if there's any good Mexican restaurants around here? Um, and that person was Michael Green and he said, you know, if you're going to get Mexican food, I'm coming with you. Um, <laughs> and that was genuinely where it started. Like from that point on, we, we basically hung out for the entire duration of the festival it was a little tense because neither of us had seen each other's work. Like we'd become friends, but we were like, oh God, is it going to be so awkward when we watch their movie and it's crap. But, and, and, you know, perfectly in its own dramatic way, it was at the end of the week or whatever. Like, so we'd spent the whole week together and not seen each other's stuff. Um, yeah. But we both really liked each other's movies. And uh, yeah, we just committed to working together, like I said. And we've stayed in touch. Like that must be over 10 years ago now. Um, and you know he's basically like my brother from another mother as we as we say work work husband um <laughs> i was on skype with him yesterday which is the great irony that i've i finally ended up moving to the us supposedly to benefit from getting in the room with people and like being here on the ground and forming face to face relationships with folks but you know yep. lockdown means that everything's happening over skype anyway so even with michael <laughs> when we were working on our latest project, um, it had to be done over Skype. But, yeah, we continue to work together and, and you know, love the process. It's the anyway. same thing. It's the same thing because I just recently moved uh, to Los Angeles from Boston right before the lockdown. And my screenplay writer, Will Simmons, has always lived out here in, L- in L.A. So we've always done stuff via Skype. And now we're living in the same city and we're still doing stuff via Skype. Right. So it's just... It's ridiculous. Life is a cruel wench. <laughs> Very true, my friend. Yeah. Very true. Um, so how does the writing process work with you guys? Do you come up with ideas together? Do you come up with an idea and send him some stuff? Or is it like, it, it how, bl- how does it start? You know, the, the genesis of ideas sort of like blurs across time. But I think generally like the, the stuff that we work on are ideas that I've come up with because Michael's a writer in his own right and he doesn't need me to write and stuff so if he has an idea he just goes and writes it on his own but if i have an idea i'll call him up and i'll say hey how about this um you know what do you think is this something you're interested in can we take this somewhere and this is now that michael is no longer on my payroll back when i was paying him i'd be like listen here (laughs) this is what we're doing (laughs) um but uh you know yes we we basically have the kernel of an idea and we'll, we'll throw it around and we'll start talking about the things that make that idea great or the things that don't work in that idea and we'll try and sort of shave off the, the sharp edges and polish it up a little bit. And then when then we start to get into the nitty-gritty of um, 
key beats and turns in the script. Like we've been doing it so long now, we really actually have a, a shared formula that both of us understand. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, we, we get the cork board out and we have uh, scene cards and we're looking for, you know, the inciting incident. We're looking for the midpoint. We're looking for the act three climax. We're looking for the end of act two, basically. Um, and then the, the journey that the character to goes on. Um, and sometimes it's super easy and that stuff like all slots into place, um, without much difficulty and then sometimes it's very hard and it takes yeah. a long time um but that actually you know again on theme with the title of this podcast like that can be the most fun process like being with michael in the room throwing ideas around iterating um the story is is a sort of carefree and fun exploration mm. it, yeah. you know, the, the pressure certainly ramps up when it comes to how do you actually get this shot in a day or how do you, you know, <laughs> yeah. get this actress into the movie or the whole film falls apart? <laughs> That's yeah. It's a little, it's a little harder to be in love with those steps in the process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of really, uh, really ha- high mountains that you have to climb over to get that stuff. And but the view is good from the top. <laughs> the, the descent can be a little bumpy. <laughs> That's funny, man. The, um, <clears throat> Well, the, the funny thing is is that, uh, well, the thing that I love the most about prep, at least from my end, is that they're really, you're still sort of finding those restrictions. Like, I, as, a, as a filmmaker myself, I need to eventually, f- like, put a fence around an idea and then play within that fence in order to make it the best that I possibly can. Because I, I feel like no restrictions are often more scary to me than having restrictions and then working within those boundaries. Um, but prior to that, it's a lot of fun. It's just like great ideas and this would be really cool. And this is really cool. And you're not really concerned about how much does this cost yet? How much, you know, how many days is this going to take me to fucking shoot? Um, but, uh, you know, once you get beyond that step and then you start to get into that, like, how do we make this fucking movie? And you, you just brought it up. Um, you know, cast is king because everybody gives a shit about who's in the movie more than they give a shit about who's making the movie these days. So, uh, and I feel like it's always been that way. Um, how did you guys get uh, Hillary Swank? What was the process of, of that like for you? The, the, I think the thing that really opened the doors for us was getting on the blacklist, which is, you know, uh, for the uninitiated, this list that Hollywood executives generate every year of the most admired unproduced screenplays, basically a, a secret roster of executives vote on which scripts they've enjoyed the most over the year. Um, and, the scripts that get the most votes get showcased on this list. And, you know, I think it's just a helpful shorthand that means when the script lands in Hilary Swank's inbox, she takes it a little bit more seriously than, you know, any scripts that don't come with some kind of endorsement. Obviously, she's getting stuff that's like, Steven Sodenberg is directing this movie. Do you want to be in it? And she's obviously mm-hmm. going to look at that really closely. Um, or she gets mm-hmm. one that says that, you know, Ron Howard is producing this film and she looks at that pretty closely. Uh, But when she gets a script from a first-time filmmaker, from a producer or a team of producers largely out of Australia, I don't know how much time she has for that sort of project unless there's some reason to to look at it closely. The the director had a film at Cannes and uh, it won the Palme d'Or or the script was on the blacklist in our case. So uh, she looks at it a little bit more closely. And, And, you know, the 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 agencies as well is a, is a huge, huge thing. It's the one-two punch of me being with WME and she being with WME and us mm-hmm. being on the blacklist. So my agent can go to her agent and say, 
you know, we've got this great script. It's on the blacklist. Great idea. Would be awesome for Hillary. You should take a look at it. And um, that agent reads the script. And then the thing that everybody agrees should be important becomes important, which is that people really like the script. So the agent reads the script, likes the script, thinks it would be good for Hillary. And then she takes it to Hillary and advocates that Hillary take a close look at it. And thankfully, she reads it and agrees. Um, And that was the amazing thing that by the time that whole process had played out, Hillary was already pre-sold on this thing. And when I got on the phone with her, you know, I was fully prepped for um, the whole, you've got to pitch her and convince her to be in this film. Like my producers are telling me beforehand, like don't stuff this up. Like, you know, the the whole film is resting on this one conversation that you're going to have. So I'm like freaking out. And then the minute Hillary picks up the phone, she's like, hi, I'm so pleased and excited to like be talking to you about this project. And she was a real pro, like, um, it's kind of it was kind of like, and I haven't really reflected on it until this moment talking about it with you. That like, you know, that often people will tell you that it's a director's job to put an actor or an actress at ease and and make them feel like they're supported so they can give their best work. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really what Hillary gave me, you know, in that very first phone call. It didn't feel like she was auditioning me. Um, she might well have been auditioning me if the call hadn't gone well and if she hadn't liked my responses. I'm sure she would have said ah, fuck that guy, fuck this movie, like I don't want anything to do with it. But she certainly like approached me with the warmth, consideration, professionalism and respect um, that kind of was the the foundation of the really healthy relationship we ultimately went on to have. That sounds amazing, man. That's amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. uh, She's fantastic in the movie, dude. And it was really, it's a great casting choice. You know, it was a... Because I remember obviously being drawn into the film because of the robot and because of the marketing, because of the lighting, because of the cinematography. All that stuff really sort of pulled me in. And then I saw that she was in it. I was like, oh, fascinating casting choice. Because it's she's almost, it harkens back to like a Sarah Connor. It harkens back to like a Ripley. So it, oh, it's, yeah, it's smart. It fits right in that world. Um, and she's fantastic. And having that level of pedigree as far as a dramatic actress is concerned for something like this really like she lifts it you know what i mean like the whole thing rises up to catch up with her yeah i mean i have no idea whether we would have gotten into sundance if it wasn't for the the prestige that she brought to the project you know that it it made this feel like um you know something that's worthy of your attention um not a straight to dvd sci-fi kind of throwaway i mean we never intended to have wanted to make something like that but i can see how if you saw the box art for this and you didn't recognize any of the the actors involved you know you'd be like well presumably the script isn't any good because the best version of that thing is amazing and would attract that level of talent you know the bad version of that Mm -hmm. is is going to be pretty patently bad um and so we um, you know, certainly we're aspiring in every department in every way to push this as far as we could and and make the very best film that we, you know, we could with the resources and time that we had. Yeah, and you brought some of this up before, and I think a lot of folks don't realize that uh, the gatekeepers uh, for in our in our world are definitely the agents um, and making sure that uh, you're smart about how you're casting. I'm in the same boat, but I'm with UTA. So, you know, whenever I start to put together cast lists or dream lists for, for cast lists, uh, the agencies are always like, who here at our roster? 
And you're like, oh, right, because you're going to make 10% from me and 10% from them and 10% from me. Got it. And then there's this whole packaging that happens with the agency. So like it's it's almost imperative that you get your agent um, on board with your idea and on board with your project and to fall in love with the project because then they're the ones that force, <laughs> kind of force the actors to read the scripts. And oftentimes I think that if it isn't something that they see as being profitable and valuable for their talent, it doesn't even get to the talent. I don't know how many times I felt like I, we've sent scripts off and it's like, did they even get it? Did it even get through the veil of agents uh, before it uh, gets to the actual person? And, and, and sometimes I've actually talked to actors and like, yeah, we didn't even see that. Um, so it's, it's wild. This world, once you sort of get into this and becoming repped and getting an agent is actually really kind of important uh, when you're into the casting stage, you know, and do you agree with me on that stuff? Do you disagree? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I that's right. I mean, it's been interesting coming, crossing into this new world that I've long dreamed about, but uh, have only recently arrived into, which is that of the, the second time filmmaker. Um, mm. And you just realize how much stuff is out there, like how many scripts are out there. Like, I get sent so much stuff and, you know, I've made one film that was at Sundance and, and is on Netflix, you know, like, but I am, uh, I appreciate the position that I'm in, but it's not like I got nominated for an Oscar last year. Right. So you, mm -hmm. you have to imagine uh, how much stuff people like Hillary get, like there's just so much stuff. And you can't that filtration process is is completely tragically necessary um yeah. so how you navigate that it, it's it's very hard very very hard but you know aligning yourself with the right producers um who have the right relationships with the talent or with uh the agencies is certainly one way to do it like making a script that's so goddamn good uh that um you get on a blacklist or you know, it's undeniable when people read it is also a good approach, but very, very hard to do, to be honest. Mm, um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, much harder to come up with an idea that's so good in abstraction, like not the execution, because getting somebody to read the thing to start with is the challenge. It doesn't, you know, in some ways, it doesn't matter how good the words on the page are. It's how good is the logline? How good is the idea? Hell yeah. Um, so somebody actually goes, you know, that, that doesn't know you at all goes, you know what, shit, that's actually such a good idea. I, I'm going to read the first three pages of this. Um, oh, man, it's real hard. Well, and, you know, and then it comes down to the stuff that I've been learning uh, with my short time out here and plus also doing this podcast. It's it's really all, all about who you know and it's really all about who you're hanging out with and having like a solid, really good log line, a really concise idea that uh, is going to grab people is important because oftentimes you're just having the smallest of conversations it's like like you saying how you met your writer you're literally turning going who's got good mexican food and having uh an idea or something that fits within that that conversation uh is important i think because oftentimes you know the act of sitting down and reading a script is a commitment you know you actually it have really, to put yeah, it it really is and i've come to realize that recently like um Having been on the other side of it as a director trying to make my first film, sending scripts to actors and and being frustrated by that question that you highlight, like, you know, have they even read it? Like they've had it for a month <laughs> yeah. or like two months. Have they not read it? 
You know, yeah. uh, you know, I was absolutely wholeheartedly there. And now seeing the amount of stuff that gets passed around in Hollywood, I totally get it. Like it, it, it is a commitment. It takes if you read a script properly, which is what you hope that somebody is going to do when you send it to them. It takes two hours or longer. You know, I'm, I'm there. I mean, there are people that are amazing and can read scripts very fast. But then I do question, yeah, you know, how, how they're closely retaining. they're looking at it. And especially as a director, when you're reading something to consider whether you want to direct this movie, you have to sort of like conceive it in your mind as you're reading it and then sometimes reconceive it in your mind and as you read further on you go oh actually that thing at the start was setting this up now let me think about that and it's a every script that you get sent is a time commitment mm-hmm. um and so you know for actors there would just be far too many to actually read um and and also it genuinely takes time to catch up so you know i now suddenly it makes complete sense to me that it takes at least a month to get somebody to read something you send them yeah Weirdly. no totally totally that's you know and it's it's funny how you don't realize because i started to read through scripts too that were sent to me and it's in the beginning you're like yeah 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 and you start reading scripts and when you read scripts that aren't really good to you or scripts that don't speak to you it's almost kind of devastating where you're like oh god i went through that whole thing and so, yeah, I need to get better at that. Like, you know, you hear so many stories about people that read the first 10 pages or read the first 50 pages. And if it hasn't got them, they just bin it. They just stop. But I'm always like, but what if it's the ending that makes it amazing? <laughs> what if this is the unusual suspects or something like that? You know, or this yeah. extents. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. but. Uh, yeah, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah, I think you get burned enough times. You go, this probably isn't the sixth sense. I'm going to uh, assume that this is no good and throw this away. Well, in the beginning, when I started to get scripts sent to me, I would, you know, I would. Ass- I was assuming that my management, my agents were venting it for me. So they, it was like, well, if they're going to send me this, then they know my work. So this has got to be good in one way or another. And so I would go through and read it and be like, I don't see why. I don't see why I'm reading this. And then you, you, you're continuing to read it, and you're like, maybe it's awesome. Like, like you said, maybe it's at the end. Maybe there's like a really good reveal. There's a good creature in here. And you get all the way to the end, and you're just like, huh, did I not read it right? Is there a reason why? You know. And I would often call my agents and management afterwards and just be like, I know you guys sent me this thing, but like, I don't know if it speaks to me. Why did you? Say? And they're like, do you like it? I'm like, ah, am I supposed to like it? <laughs> yeah man you know it's like um it was funny when we made the film and it came out and we got into it was basically when we were announced that we were in sundance uh suddenly the the gates to hollywood opened and i started receiving other people's scripts and you realize like these aren't that good you know like Mm -hmm. i'm sure there are incredible scripts out there but they're reserved for the incredible filmmakers that have a proven track record like if you're sitting if you're a producer that's got a friggin' awesome script you're going to send it to george clooney scorsese whoever like you you know you think is the right person for that material and can really put a rocket on this thing and get it made um it is the scripts that have problems or that need uh you know some sort of directorial insight or improvement like oh you know what this is great but if i did it this way or if i changed this part of the script like those are the ones that are free and available uh, yeah. for directors that are really trying to find their feet. Uh, so, yeah, inevitably you're seeing the kind of like broken wing birds flutter onto your windowsill and it's sort of up to you whether you need, to, you know, you're going to nurse that bird back to health or you have a, a vision for how to do that. Um, that was such a, that was such a, oh, oh, 
it's an important statement, A, but that was such a really crazy awakening for me too when you sort of hit that point. And I also realized that point when, when trying to cast, you know, because you go through the process of trying to get specific actors and then you'll, at least for my producers, they give me this list of actors that I'm like, who the fuck are these guys? And they're like, well, these guys have value. And, and I'm like, yeah, but what about these guys? And they go, yeah, but you're not, uh, you're not, you're not there yet. <laughs> like this is, this is the camp that you're allowed to play in at this level that you're at as a director. I think it's you know good to I mean? be realistic. You know, the, I'm a through penguin empire. I'm a producer as well. And we're working with other filmmakers and it's always hard having those conversations about like um, who would be sensible or right for this, you know, cause everyone, you want to reach for the stars because you want someone great. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to level up the project and you want to make it easier to get the thing financed. Like if you've got Matt Damon in your movie, um it's going to get made you know assuming it can be made for the right price um but it's obviously really hard to get matt damon and so uh logic would say don't waste the time but then there's always the exception to the rule like there's always somebody that managed to pull it off and every filmmaker wants them to be that person um and i'm very aware that i to some extent i'm that person you know like it's crazy to me that hillary swank is in my first film like we actually Mm -hmm. didn't think that that was possible or plausible like we and the story that's been told in the press a number of times over is that like when michael and i were working on the script we talked about hillary because we it's a we're working on this thing remotely it's in both of our minds separately but we need to have a shared language or a shared vision for what we're working towards so we said, you know, this character should be like a Hillary Swank type. Um, and, you know, we said that, but we never thought that we'd get her. Mm. But really, I suppose it was the the agents and the and the producers saying that, that that it was possible that made us feel like we should shoot for the stars and, and, and take that shot. But it is the the dilemma that faces every every film. I think at every level is you know, who, who is realistic? Like, who can we actually get into this movie? It's tricky. And it's, it is. And it's, it's great that you guys actually, oftentimes I feel like in the beginning when I started putting projects together, I was like, well, I got to be realistic about this and this is who this is. But I think it's actually good early on for you to project that kind of idea. And especially if you guys are projecting that idea in the writer's room and then that idea just sort of sticks with you. And then when you're hanging out with, uh, agents or you're hanging out with producers, you're like, yeah, we were always thinking Hillary Swank. We were always thinking and so then that starts to seed itself in all the minds of the people that are potentially going to help you make the movie. Um, and then it's almost like you manifest that. And of course, you can sit there and go, I want Bruce Willis in my movie, you know, and it's never going to happen because you're not being realistic about it. But Hillary Swank's always seemed like a pretty realistic choice for you guys. I mean, even though she's such a great get, I mean, she's, how long was she out of the business before she did your stuff a few years at least right yeah she was certainly dealing with some issues with her father's health that had had taken uh. her out of the game for a little while um but then you know in, a, in its own way that that's a real challenge because she's thinking so carefully and strategically about what's the uh. right movie for her to to come back with um and we just were felt really blessed that we were one of the films that she was considering in that roster um and, you know, like that's another whole thing. Like, you know, actors are having their own really complex careers, like in terms of the different phases of their careers and the different kinds of things that they're interested in doing. Like even if you have a part that you wrote for someone that they would be perfect for, 
but they're no longer interested in films of that type. Like they were doing that kind of thing three years ago and they want to try something new. Like you really do, as we said at the start, need the stars to align. Like, mm. uh, you know, you know, you, you go on a, um, a town tour, like when your film comes out and you, you meet a bunch of executives and tell the story of how your film got made and what you want to do next. Um, and I always describe the making of I Am Mother as like a series of miracles, like, Getting Hillary, getting Hillary was a miracle. Meeting Michael was a miracle. Um, finding Clara, the lead actress, was a was a miracle. And the other big one was um, working with Weta Workshop and specifically finding Luke Hawker, who played Mother on set. But wow. even more than that, he was the guy that built the robot suit that he's wearing. So he was the project supervisor in at Weta. He was working at Weta. Um, when we brought the project to them, and that's how we found him. Like he he auditioned for the part, but he was already on the project as the as the project lead. Um, and the fact that's, that the guy that wore the suit built the suit is part of why it looks as awesome as it does and works as well as it does. That is so cool. And I, I actually wanted to ask you about that too. Uh, getting Mudda is such a great get. I mean, it's just as good as getting. Uh, Hillary Swank is they're the premiere at this point. The what like them and ILM are the premier creature making places. How did you guys convince them to work on the movie? Weta is like so incredible that they're like almost an exception to every rule you can think of. Like if you sent an email to WME or UTA or um, any of these sort of like massively powerhouse organizations that can get your film made, if you sent one unannounced into their inbox you would never hear from them. No one would ever read it. <laughs> but with Weta, we just sent them an email to the address on their website and we said, hey, we're a couple of first-time filmmakers. This is before we had our sort of name Australian producer on the project even. It was just Michael and I. And we said, hey, you know, we have this vision for this story about a robot that's raising a child in the interests of repopulating Earth after the extinction of mankind um we want to do it practically and we want to work with you guys to do it like we can send you the script are you interested in finding out more uh and they just responded you know and i think there's a, f- a few reasons why i mean one they're legends uh two they love movies and they love this kind of movie and they love this kind of work um mm. you know they 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 started their business to make practical magic live on set in front of the camera and that's getting harder and harder to, to find. Um, so the fact that we wanted to do this film this way was certainly appealing to them. And then I think it does get back to what we talked about before in as much that like this was an idea for a film that they hadn't seen before, that they thought sounded cool and it piqued their interest. Um, and mm. then we sent them the script, they read the script and they liked the script and so then they came on board. They were actually one of the very first pieces of the to fall into place on the project, and and they helped open many doors subsequently because they have um, so many fans, you know, both in the audience and behind the scenes. Like it just their name carries a lot of a lot of weight. And um, when we were going around talking about how we were going to get this film made for a price. Um, something that on paper seems quite ambitious. I mean, there's a robot as one of your main characters. Like, how are you possibly going to do that? Um, and I said, well, well we're going to do it practically. And, you know, there's one of two ways that people react to that. Either, you know, 50% of the room goes, fuck yeah, that's awesome. Let's do it. Robocop, <laughs> fucking predator, <laughs> alien, baby. Here we go. And the other half of the room are like, ooh, that could be, that could be real bad, right? Like, that's not going to work. 
Like that could be really cheesy. And I'm like, yeah, but Weta are doing it. And then at that point, everyone in the room is like, oh, this is going to be amazing. Um, yeah, and that yeah, just yeah. helps streamline the process for us. Well, a lot of my listeners on the show are, are younger filmmakers, so uh, I I want to I want to <laughs> just like uh, save Weta from getting a bunch of emails right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that uh, you know, what did you guys when you guys sent them the email? You also were able to send your track record, your history with commercials, and the level of quality that you did. I'm sure that they were able to go through and look at your work before they also made a decision from some random email about a guy saying, I want to make a movie about a robot and a little girl. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, yeah. it, it'd be interesting to go back and find that, uh, that email and see exactly what the content of it was. But yeah, on some level you need to be able to establish credibility that you actually can execute and pull this off. And yeah, I mean, I think the sad reality, uh, not sad. I think just think the reality for a lot of really young filmmakers is you need to be ready for your big opportunity when it comes, uh, mm-hmm. and you need to be realistic about where you are and put in the the hard graft. Like, I think you know, reaching for the stars is what you've got to do every step of the way. Absolutely, you know, like back when I was making stop motion animated films in my bedroom, they were far more ambitious than they had any right to be. You know, like I was <laughs> taking over multiple rooms of the house and like on one of my short films, we converted the backyard swimming pool into a swamp. And like, it was like, yeah, you've got to, you've got to push and push and push. But uh, you also need to be clever about, you know, when's the right time to involve other people. And usually when it, it the answer is when you've got something to show, um, when mm-hmm. you've won that local short film contest or you've won that screenwriting contest or you've secured an agent that's when you can start and you could substantiate your talent. Like it's very hard to, to have people just, just believe in you uh, when there's nothing to, to point at. And that's, and that's why like once you've made your first film, there's a whole new tier of opportunities that are available to you. And when you make your third film, there's a different tier of films that are available to you. When you, after you make your first short film, there's a different tier of opportunities that are available to you. So yeah, I think um, whether it was in that first email or not, I don't know. But Weta wouldn't have carried on the conversation if they hadn't been able to look at our website and see that, you know, we were a legitimate company making TV commercials that looked every bit as good as the kinds mm-hmm. of films that we were aspiring to make. Yeah. And I, I, I try to express uh, a little bit of knowledge to the younger filmmakers. Obviously, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Um, and I was that young filmmaker that was impatient in, in my early 20s. And it's like, I want to be making movies. I want to do this stuff. But... There is something valuable in that gest in that gestation period, in that time that uh, you are sort of developing these things, you are putting these things together, you're working with your friends, you're doing stuff in your hometown, and you're just working on craft and you're working on technique. Uh, and in that building period is when you're coming up with all these really great tricks that you ultimately fall back on when you're on sets with Hillary Swank or when you're in these positions. And so uh, you really should appreciate that time period. And even though it doesn't seem like you're moving fast enough, there's a reason why the greats in our industry are still working at 78 years old. Uh, because time is king and experience is king uh, in filmmaking because they're, it's such a huge task with so many different variables and so many life experiences required um, to actually pull this stuff off. And, and more than anything, to survive it. 
Uh, so those of you who were younger going like, man, I wish I could make my fucking movie right now. It's okay if it's not the case. It's okay if you're just working on small things and, and learning how to edit and learning how to do this stuff because you're still building all that material that's going to be there with you uh, as you get to your first film. Oh, yeah. Know? I mean, I think, you know, there's that that line that it takes 10 years to become good at anything. I think that's really true. Mm-hmm. You know, it was 10, it was 10 plus years of Michael and I working on on scripts before we had a script that was really the one and, and more years than that telling stories in the commercial space, getting on sets, making things uh before you know i was ready to make my my first film the the one like really obvious lesson retrospectively uh but completely missed by me even through my years of study at university was read some books you know like watching movies is great (laughs) but i remember like there was a phase in of my life post university where i started reading books about screenwriting and i was like oh man this stuff is amazing like if i had read this in film school imagine how much further along i'd be now and 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 why wasn't weren't these books on the curriculum at film school and then of course years later i was like cleaning up my uh my junk at my parents' place and found some of my university curriculums and every one of those books was on the university <laughs> curriculum. I just hadn't <laughs> taken the time to read them. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, shout out to Robert McKee's story, shout out to Blake Snyder's Save the Cat, you know, uh, shout out to Sid Field. Like, you know, if you're a young filmmaker, read every single one of those um, and you will be all the better for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Guaranteed. No. It's really cool. So after going through, okay, so you've you've gone through that moment where you're on set and you have your first film financed and all the stars are aligned and you're you're in this air conditioned stage and you have uh, Weta there and you're you're looking at this robot walking around. Um, what happens at that? Does does everything change for you at that point? Like when you're seeing this stuff and you're looking and it's daily you're looking at the monitor and this is part of your life and then going into the edit room. And having bins full of this stuff, um, what changes for you at that point? In what way? I just think like emo- like I'm so fascinated by that. Like emotionally and like creatively, do you do you feel like you're standing on a new plateau? And then does that change the way that you uh, decide to do projects and to make projects? Or is that is like how do I put this? It's like there's this. It's a major milestone. You know what I mean? Like getting through your first feature and, and being on that set and being after. Like, was there depression after you finished that film? There's a, um, um, you know, it took so long to get the, the film made and so much effort to get to that point. I remember you know, all my friends that had, had been with me since high school when I was the, the, the film kid, you know, that was making videos that played at school assemblies and all of that stuff. Uh, they'd be like, dude, can you believe that you're making a film? Like, can you believe that this is actually happening? And my response would always be, I better be making a fucking film. Like, it feels like I'm making a film. Like, because everything that happens to you like that, you've earned it. Like, you've worked so hard to get to that point that when it comes, it's not really mind-blowing. It it feels like I've felt found this over the years, like, when I've won awards for commercials, say, like if I win an award for a commercial that I'm proud of, you're always like, oh, that's nice. You know, like, great. You, you <laughs> yeah. don't, you're not like, fuck yeah, wow. Yeah. 
it's like it's when you win an award for a commercial, you're like, really? I won an award for that commercial? You're like, fuck yeah, this is great. Wow. So it's sort of the stuff that's a little bit out of your control that you tend to be most stoked about. So getting into Sundance like definitely was like, wow, you know, you can make a great movie and there's no guarantee you're going to get into Sundance. So when you get into Sundance, fuck yeah, wow. And when you get Hillary, it's definitely fuck yeah, wow. But like getting the chance to be on set and making a movie and looking at the results of your hard work in the in the dailies and the rushes, like I tend to be more like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> that looks as good as it could given the amount of effort and time and resources that we had to to get that shot, you know. Um, and, you know, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Like, you know, the other moments where you're like, fuck yeah, wow, when you're on set is when actors give you performances that are miraculous. Yes. Like, it's like, I didn't do fucking anything to deserve what you're giving me right now. Like, that, <laughs> that is amazing, like, what you just did in front of the camera. So, that's fuck yeah, wow. Um, but, yeah, definitely the moment of, like, holy shit, we did it hasn't ever really come in any major way. Like I've been around other people who have had, had that moment. <laughs> like <laughs> at the Sundance premiere, you know, like there was definitely a lot of people uh, that were having that moment and I, I got a taste of it certainly, but um, it all felt pretty pretty hard won. Um, yeah, yeah. And then it's just, you know, like you say, like doing the work again. Like you, you finish your first film. And then you've you got to do the work of getting the second one going. And even um, particularly for a film of this size that I'm so invested in, like there was a lot of work even after the film was finished. Like closing the deal with Netflix was work, you know, and yeah. then working with them on the poster was work. And then uh, – and fun work, great, great work. I mean, I love poster design. It's a, my background is in design. And then mm-hmm. making sure the trailer was, was great was work. Um, and then doing the PR was work. So like uh, – yeah, it's it's just a lot of hard graft to to get to those moments. Um, but most of that, I, I you know, really enjoyed. Do you feel? Do you feel after you finish something like this, like after Netflix acquires it and after all that work's done, do you feel sort of like the the uh, the the depression set in? Do you have like sort of that moment of like oh, I'm not doing this anymore? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, you could- definitely do. Like the the. Um, you know, for a director, I mean, I think everyone experiences that differently and I know plenty of directors that are really hard hit by it and I was too in, in my own way uh, but it was sort of stepped out over such a long period of time because the shooting crew vanishes but you're still with the project, you know, like you're in mm-hmm. you're in post-production and you're still living with it day in, day out and you've got a whole new post crew that you're working with. You've got your editor You've got your sound team. You're still working with your producers. You've got ADR to come, so you're still talking with the actors. Like, um, but you mourn each step of the process, definitely. And then I think, you know, the the version of that 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 probably hit me hardest is when it was actually out, like when it was finally released on Netflix and it was like done. Um, that was definitely a readjustment, like because you know your life had been entirely defined by is at least almost as far back as you can remember. Like I'm not kidding when I was saying that like basically from the time that I realized that people made movies and not gods, you know, I started (laughs) making movies um, and it was all in the interests of getting to make a movie like the ones that I loved growing up and you study it in high school, you study it at university, you, you get together with friends, you start a company, 
you write a script, you make a movie, like your entire life is defined by getting to that moment. Um, mm. And then it's actually done and you have to, and, and, and more specifically than that, like the last four or five years of your life have been completely dedicated to getting this particular project done. Yeah. Um, you know, your daily routine is is linked to your um, what needs to be done on that project on any given day. All the people that you're talking to is it's linked to that project. When the film is actually out, you basically have that film no longer in your life, and you and you kind of go, "Oh shit! All right, well, what is what does life look like now?" Um, and that's an adjustment. I think, you know, filmmakers that have more going on and have more experience and maybe are juggling multiple projects can get straight into the next thing. Um, yeah, but for me, it was like, okay, so what do I do now? I mean, there was a, like a little bit of like, thank God, like, you know, now I can relax and have a holiday. Um, yeah. but it's, but that's certainly not the entirety of what you're experiencing. And it's, and it is destabilizing. Fortunately, the response was really positive. Um, yeah. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine because even with the response being as positive as it was, it's never enough. Like people, you know, it's not like, why isn't there a fucking parade for this film? <laughs> why haven't feel- we have a national holiday for everybody to watch my movie? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're like searching for as much validation as you could possibly get. Of course, like you made the film for an audience, right? Um, sure. So I was thankful. We had ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, and like I mentioned before, like there are people that really love the movie, um, and then there are people that don't even know it exists, and then there are people that have seen it and don't like it, and there are people that see it and think it's fine. Um, but you'll take as much positive praise as you can get, of course. <laughs> um, and so we got we got plenty, uh, and I was really thankful for it. Uh, but even then, it's a little destabilizing, and I can't imagine how horrible it must be and i know that it's coming like i know that i'm gonna have this experience at some point but to like give your heart and soul and give everything to make the best film that you could and then through whatever you know whatever reason like maybe it's your fault maybe it's not um right but the film just doesn't work and doesn't uh you know people don't like it like i can't imagine like what it must feel like to have people rag on your stuff like i i look at what ryan johnson went through on Last Jedi, and I'm actually disgusted, like you know, of his, about the treatment that he received because yeah, that film, yeah, which yeah. I actually really like, there's certainly parts of it that I, you know, we could have a conversation about, but I respect sure. the choices, and on the whole, I think it's really good, um, mm-hmm. spectacular, mm-hmm. brave, and to its credit, singular, like it's absolutely his vision, what he wanted to do, and like a cohesive whole in service of that vision, right? But to yep. have people come out and so disrespectfully just tear it to shreds, tear him to shreds, when all he all he wanted to do for years was entertain you. Like he want he desperately wanted to make a great Star Wars movie. Um yeah. and if you don't think that he did, like no one's more disappointed than him. So yeah. like just cut the guy some slack. But like to to see comments where people are like, oh, this guy's an idiot, or like he he didn't even try or whatever. I just think that's so disrespectful, like uh, because it's not true. Uh, and fuck you, it's it's a good movie. <laughs> yeah, so. totally. To- and dude, it comes down to I think it comes down to the to the lack of. Uh, I think I think it's the, the delivery systems. You know what I mean? Like there the, there was a period of time, at least 
with a lot of the greats that a lot of films are based upon right now, there was the marketing was right. The delivery systems were right. Like people watching these things were like, this is still fucking special. Like you, you make comments on how you thought movies were delivered by the gods. Dude, I, I look back at it at a time period where this is pre uh, YouTube, pre behind the scenes videos. Really there, there wasn't a lot of that. All that was reserved for internal use or in industry use like EPKs and behind the scenes. That was how they got promoted internally. Uh, it wasn't until after Jurassic Park, and and I feel like such an idiot saying this when I was a kid, where I was like, how'd they grow dinosaurs? Like, I had absolutely no idea. And so the experience was so special. And now we live in a time period where films are overly examined before they come out. There are all oh, sorts yeah. of theories, and the internet sort of runs crazy with theories. And then we've hit this point where fans and consumers have been given more control than I think they necessarily should have for their own good, I think more than they should have. And you have uh, giant corporations that are are running algorithms and doing surveys and trying to figure out exactly how to like satisfy fans that don't necessarily know what they want to be satisfied. And so the only way that we get like these really classics, these fantastic films is filmmakers taking a risk and taking a a gamble for stuff that really works out and there was i think i don't know i think there's such a there was more respect for it back then because it was such a special thing and there were only a few of them that were really promoted that way and there was only a, a certain amount of ways that you could see them and then you start talking like pre vhs like you could only see them in the theater and then overanalyzing things with DVD became a thing and changes the way that we do it. Now we're at a point where uh, people will just overanalyze trailers and, and scour through fucking trailers for stuff. Um, so oh, it man, really absolutely. I mean, I think that the um, and so much of the the loudest voices on online talking about movies and and it can be all kinds of ages, right? Like you know, some yeah. some teenagers are super well-versed in in the history of, of movies in the particular genre they care about, right? Yeah. Um, but a lot of it is like people that have been around the block a few times and had, had a lot more time up their sleeves to, to watch stuff, right? They tend to be super critical about like, oh, we've seen this before or this is just a rehash of that, you know? Um, and I think part of it is like we're just blessed these days with such an incredible volume of stuff and this resource called the internet. It's like yeah. people's minds were blown by the Matrix because no one had seen Ghost in the Shell. Like Ghost in the Shell's out there. Like, I, And yep. I love the Matrix. It's one of my favorite films. Don't get me wrong. I, and I say all of this because I don't think it's a mark against it that it was inspired by other stuff. Like... Everything is inspired by other stuff. It's just now everyone has access to the other stuff. So you very rarely get that kind of whole mind-blowing, what? Like, where did this come from? This, like, feels like I've never seen this before. Whereas yeah. now I think there's an ability uh, for people to kind of connect the dots. It's like, and also a lot of cinema is referencing other cinema now, whereas back when James Cameron and Spielberg and those guys were like in their heyday, they were referencing things that had never been done in cinema before because they couldn't be done because there wasn't the technology on the VFX size side. So they were referencing books like Star Wars is like largely based on June. Um, yeah. And yeah, like yeah. no one had seen that sort of stuff before, like sci-fi worlds like depicted like that or Blade Runner is like necromancer. Um, like there's, you know, yeah, there was no precedent for that stuff in 
in this in cinema. Yeah, no, totally, totally. And it really does make a huge difference, I think. So I don't know, like the, I, the part of the reason why I do this show is that respect the process and really fall in love with the process. And if you, I think there's a level of understanding that because we're all in cinema and every, like the guy pumping gas at the gas station thinks he knows about, you know, 3D animation at this point. So like everybody is immersed in it. And I feel like since we do live in this time period, understand the process, understand what goes into the process and, and understand uh, how this stuff is made um, because then you might just have a little bit more of an appreciation for it. You might under like a little bit more empathy. And as filmmakers, we're, we're, we're charged with having empathy. That's important. Like we have to understand how people process things, but the audience never is. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's important or not, but it, sometimes as a filmmaker, you wish they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think as, as a filmmaker, you wish you do, but of course, the the film has to work on its own terms. That's, course, I mean, that's what we used to always say in film school. It was like when your work played in front of the audience, like there is no opportunity for excuses. Like you don't get to say, "Oh, we only got access to this location for three hours," like or this actor pulled out the night before. Like you learn that lesson hard in film school, and unfortunately, it remains true. It's like. It's totally understandable uh, and it's hard to swallow. But at the end of the day, like the film is the film. It exists on its own. It either works or it doesn't. And the audience either likes it or they don't. Um, you know, you, you don't get to share the story of how or why it is the way that it is and get a free pass as a result. Like it's, yeah, it's just the way it is, unfortunately. Um, it's, it's fascinating though, because then you start looking at movies like The Room, and the room itself is more about the experience. It's more about uh, understanding how that film was made and, and, and uh, sort of celebrating it or <laughs> not celebrating how that film was made. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that when movies, at least I feel like when movies are still sort of a social experiment and there's still a lot of like communal involvement with them, I think they end up sort of transcending a bit more than if a movie is just... And this is an interesting question for you because your movie released on Netflix, which is amazing. If if Netflix didn't exist, then this wouldn't have got out to such a, a huge audience. Do you think it would have been different if it was more of a theatrical run than if it was just uh, put on a streaming service? We like, you know, it's interesting how quickly that conversation moved. You know, when we started the process of making I Am Mother, it was absolutely like, oh, we really hope and want and aspire for this to end up in theaters. And then like a couple of years later, we were like, man, I really hope that we <laughs> we are one of the chosen few that get on Netflix because they're the, the few people that are going to pay what this film is worth. And they're the, you know, most crucially, they're the one of the few paths to an audience that still works. Like there aren't yeah. too many sci-fi films of this size that go to theaters and are embraced by by audiences anymore. Um, it's just the habits of the the viewer has has changed so much. Like people go to the movies for huge event franchise films, and that's kind of it. And that's fine. Like that life changes, right? But like we had to change with the times too, and we needed to get onto the platform where the the most interesting and exciting original content was being screened, which at the time felt like it was was Netflix. Like we had we had offers from other companies to, to release the film theatrically but it mm -hmm. was obviously not as financially appealing 
Mm-hmm. And and there was certainly no guarantee that we were going to find the audience. And like it was most like I made this movie for future fans of I Am Mother. Like the best case scenario of this film in my mind was like people want to own a mother collectible figurine and people want to dress up as mother and go to or daughter and go to Comic-Con, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I knew that like, yeah, getting it on a Netflix was definitely the, the best pathway to that result. Like I love we could, I mean, we could go down the rabbit hole of a whole conversation about the theatrical experience. Like, I, I grew up going to the movies, as you might imagine. I mm-hmm. love going to the movies and still go very regularly when the world is not in lockdown. Um, uh, and I have a lot of nostalgia for that experience, but not a lot of, I think, increasingly fewer and fewer people do. Um, if you're a teenager growing up today, like, you have, you're going to have nostalgia for Netflix. And, sure. and like, you know, sure. I have nostalgia for going to the video store and shortlisting my favorites as we walked around the room with my family or whatever. But for for um, kids today, it's absolutely going to be the experience of clicking through thumbnails with the family and talking about what they're going to watch. Like, um, you know, I a lot of people talk about going to the movies, the benefit of going to the movies is being the communal viewing experience. And like when that happens, it's magic, unquestionably. Some of my favorite theatrical experiences actually happened here in the United States and like um, were when the audience was going off. But sure. more often than not, when I go to the movies and like I say, I go a lot, like it, there's no one there. <laughs> it's like it's like it, the, the the rooms are a quarter full at most. And like really the reason I still go regularly is because I love the ritual and I love going to the movies and I enjoy the big screen and the sound and all that sort of stuff. Sure. But people have huge TVs at home and they have great speaker systems at home and it's just um, it's harder for people I think to justify the expense and the effort of going out to the movies and then rightly they want what they're going to see to be an event and they want to know that it's going to be great. So they, they turn to the brands that they're familiar with and they're certain are going to, are going to work. You know, um, I say all of this with a tinge of sadness. Like I remember growing up going to the movies <laughs> like each week, what was at the film, like the theaters would, was like a whole new world. Like um, sure. in 1999, there's a book out about it at the moment. Like each week that you went to the movies in 1999, you were being offered something so distinct and inventive and original and fresh. Um, but now that's streaming, unfortunately, or TV, to be honest, like the, the most inventive uh, world creation and risk taking is happening e- either on streaming or on TV, not in the theaters for, for whatever reason. But yeah, you know, I say yeah, all yeah. of that, and I just want to be like, "Come on, movie theaters, let's do this." When the lockdown ends, I'll be there. I'm going to buy my ticket. Like, I, I want to see that thrive. <laughs> if there was some way to turn the ship around, let's do it. Uh, well, I love the but, movies, but ooh, it's an interesting time. Well, and what I try to, what I, it's a tough thing because you don't want to be that person that's describing these things for a younger generation going back in my fucking day. Blah, 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 blah. Well, and it'd be interesting the- to know what your audience thinks, right? Like if your if your audience is a lot of younger filmmakers, like these are people that love movies, right? But do they love sure. theaters or do they love movies? And I would be interested to know. Like I've not really spoken to a bunch of younger younger generation film. Well, definitely, we'll definitely do a poll after we release this episode, and I think. I try to explain it like this because I'm always drawing parallels. And if you listen to the show, if you watch, if you go back to the episodes, I'm always talking about cooking and, and directing. And I feel like they're both the same thing. Like making a meal and making a film have a lot of the same things involved with it. And for me, I think that 
uh, streaming services, as great as they are and as much as they, I love that they exist, they feel like takeout more than actually going to a restaurant. And if I had to compare uh, that, that why that's different, I think if I go out to a restaurant and I've decided not to make a meal at home and I've decided not to just call in a meal and have it delivered to the house, I go because of the experience. I go because of the environment that I'm in. I'm in a different environment. And I go because I'm literally releasing control. And I think the one thing that kind of um, drives me crazy about streaming stuff is that the control is still given to the viewer. So if someone's watching a movie, which happens so fucking frequently in my place, it drives my girlfriend does it all the time, drives me nuts. Well, she'll pause a movie to respond to a text. It drives me absolutely insane. Because it's like, look, the filmmaker just went through the whole process of building this vibe. Just leave your phone in the other fucking room and like commit. <laughs> Please just commit to this thing. Um, but when you don't have that ability, like if you go see something in the cinema and you are like literally holding it, you have to take a leak and you're holding it in because you don't want to miss something. You are so committed to that. And it's if the movie true, is, man. yeah, really if, the movie's, if the movie's great, then you're fucking there. And you're like, look, I held onto that piss for 25 minutes because I was so involved with this story. Um, I think those things are just subtly important to letting eh, go. I'm hugely important. Into it. They're, they're hugely okay, important. There you go. And, like, <laughs> and, and I remember, like, um, you know, like even when we had screenings of I Am Mother, like, you know, we had the premiere at the ArcLight here in Hollywood, or even yeah. at the Eccles, like um, the sound, like just the the oh. you know, like the sound that you get in a theater is obviously head and shoulders above what you get at home. Um, oh my god yeah so like yeah look it's 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 the it's the top dog it's the thing to 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 beat it's um it's definitely the 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 preference but it's just the audience man like whether they whether they feel the same way it's interesting you talk about um you know the the commitment like uh one of the examples of that that like was really cut and dry and, and clear to me was this um australian film called sweet country which is a beautiful movie but it's it. it's hard it's hard graph like it's hard going like it's no score it's two hours long it's slow by design um, and if I was being like really honest uh, you know I probably would have bailed out if I was watching it on streaming but mm-hmm. by the end of it I'm in tears like I just like it's a masterpiece it's like incredible um, but that's because you feel like you've really been through something with the the characters, right? Like it's it's a stark and arduous by design, um, yeah. And yeah, yeah. and so like you, yeah, you know, like it it rewards your commitment in a way that only a movie in a theater can, because in streaming it's just a different, it's a different beast. Yeah, because you have control. I mean, ultimately. It- I think that's kind of why I, I never really got into VR stuff and they were really trying to push VR stuff to directors for quite some time. And it's like, it's hard to tell a singular vision when the, when the user has so much control in the, in that environment. And I think that people still like experience stories and people still like visions, like stories for visionists, like whether you're a musician or whether you're a director, people still like that perspective and crave that perspective because we're all looking for sort of either to identify with someone else with the life experiences that we've been through or try to have an understanding of why life gives us these experiences. Uh, and that really just comes, I think, I feel like the most powerful stuff that I've learned has been through a singular voice through somebody like delivering it in their way. Like how many nightmares do you have about, uh, 
AI taking over the planet because of James Cameron. You know, like yeah. how like how ingrained in the social uh, consciousness is that? You know, so I don't know. That's just me ranting and raving about this shit. We could talk about this all day. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're uh, sort of hitting that point, man. I appreciate you being on the show. Um, yes, I hope it wasn't too bleak at, at the end there. Like, I mean, the moral of the story is, and the great thing that the streamers offer, uh, as much as anything, is so much opportunity. Like. There yes. is, there, there's never been a better time to get your story told. There's never been more avenues with which to, to kind of get it seen. Um, it's a great time to be making movies. It's a great time to be telling stories, even more fundamentally. And I agree with you. It, it, the purpose of that was not to be bleak. I think even if you are watching thing, things streaming, there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening now with the virus. And, and the fact that as a species, a planet-wise fucking species, we're not allowed to interact with each other physically... And so there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening where people are screening movies uh, and watching things together online. I mean, it isn't necessarily just singularly the fact that you go to a theater that's special. It's the fact that you're experiencing it beyond your bedroom in your pajamas laying in bed all day. It's, it's experiencing it with people. It's experiencing it with other folks and having these, these conversations afterwards. And um, I think that I'm really curious how the uh, world's going to adjust after all this stuff. Because I think a lot of us are just wanting to run out of the house and just hug strangers. <laughs> I mean, how, how are you holding up to the whole thing? Uh, you know, we're, we're super blessed. And it sort of lays, lays bare uh, how lucky we are because, you know, this has actually been a really serene, pleasant time for, for my wife and I. Like lots of time at home, uh, working, in, enjoying the creature comforts that we have thankfully uh but i know like just around the corner in 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 all of the hospitals in la and, and around the world like there's a war going on and people risking their lives and yeah. patients really grappling with some some really tough times but thankfully you know we're, we're all healthy here and and actually really well so um thankful for that well i'm thankful uh for you being on the show man it's been a really fun conversation yeah glad um, to be a part of it yeah, and the, I usually do this at the very end. I ask our guests to sort of give a bit of advice to the listeners that we had. And I think the easiest way to do it today would be if you now knowing, now getting past that point, now getting to the point where you've made your feature, it's on a major delivery system, it's getting great reviews. Um, if you could go back and talk to yourself 10 years ago, what sort of advice would you give yourself? I'll I'll uh, I'll tweak the question slightly because you know I I think ten years ago the advice that I'd give myself five years ago would feel obvious and unnecessary like um, and five years ago I would say keep going like five years ago I would say um, like when you're up against the hardships and it feels like you've done everything that you can and you're still hitting that brick wall like it's then that you need to keep going not mm. not kind of in an empty like put it in a hallmark card stick it on a poster on your wall it's actually when you're at rock bottom and you don't think that you can go any further and you've already kept going like that you need to actually push through um yeah that you know the, t 10 years ago i'm sure i felt like i'd gone as hard and as far as i could and that i was on track to making things happen but it's only really when it all falls apart that you have faced that choice that like 
you know, it's completely acceptable and understandable for you to, to pack up your toys and go home at that point. Like you, you gave everything that a reasonable human being could and might. Um, but if you choose to keep going, you might fail again and you need to be ready for that. Um, but you might actually succeed. Um, I think that's an important note too, is that you need to know that like when you are really at rock bottom and you choose to keep going, there's no guarantee that you'll succeed. But if you stop, you, you're guaranteed to, to, to not get to, you know, that, that top of the mountain. And that's okay. That's totally fine. Um, but you need <laughs> to actually be fine with that and, like, go into the rest of your life knowing, you know, I gave it everything I could and I, and I turned around and decided that isn't what made me happy. But if you do have more to give, yeah, keep going. So I hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Um, I just want to say it again, uh, a big thank you to Grant uh, for uh, committing to do the show. Uh, I know that these guys are really busy and, and you know, believe it or not, uh, a lot of us that work in the industry are taking this time to read scripts and to write specs and uh, to really sort of uh, plan for the moment that we can all sort of escape and run out there and uh, do, join the rat race and getting something made. So a lot of us are really fucking busy right now. So it means a lot to me. Um, and if you guys want to know more about Grant, uh, you can follow him on uh, Instagram at, uh, at Grant Spatore. So it's Grant S-P-U-T-O-R-E. So at Instagram, we'll put the links below. Um, I know he's working on a new podcast um, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about the specifics, but it's super cool. I'm definitely going to be someone that's into it, but like listening to that show. And I think if you just follow him on Instagram, you'll be able to get the updates on when his podcast comes out. Uh, also on Instagram, there's a bunch of really great uh, uh, shots uh, from his film, from behind the scenes. There's pictures of a cute dog. So if you guys are dog fans, he's got a really cute dog on there. Um, and uh, he is living the... The perfect Instagram life. <laughs> so definitely go there and check it out. Um, and if you haven't uh, watched it already, definitely go watch I Am Mother on Netflix. Um, it's really great. If you guys are fans of Terminator, if you guys are fans of Alien, if you guys are fans of The Martian, you guys are fans of all the movies that are great, um, this guy sort of has nudged his way into that category with such a really good little piece. Um, uh, and uh, even though we talk about it being like a $5 million movie, it feels like it's bigger than that. And that is because of uh, really quality technique uh, and really quality craft. Um, so definitely go check it out. And as always, if you want to interact with us, definitely follow me on Instagram at Mike Petchy on Instagram or the, the uh, podcast Instagram, which is in love with the process pod. That's in love with the process pod on Instagram. Uh, there you can leave us suggestions for the show, leave us some questions for the show. I'm going to put up, when this episode comes out, if I remember, Liam remind me, uh, I'm going to put up, let's put up a poll and see how many of you prefer to see movies in the theater as opposed to prefer to see movies um, on a streaming service. And I'm also curious why. Like, what are your reasons? Are you like, I fucking hate watching movies with other people because they're too loud or is it the movie theaters are too expensive? 
what is the difference between the two? And how do you feel now in the uh, period, time period where you have no fucking choice and you can only see them in one specific way? Um, so, yeah, that's the place to talk about that stuff. And if you want more from the show, if you want to go back, let's say you're a new new listener. You just showed up because we're getting a lot of new listeners right now. And you're looking at that list of episodes. You're like, fucking 78 episodes. Okay, here's the deal. I have created a website called The Love of the Process. So if you go to loveoftheprocess.com, there I've broken the episodes up by subject material. So you can actually go through and choose episodes based upon the type of filmmaker that you want to listen to, based upon the type of artist that you want to listen to. It's all broken up into categories. And this isn't the type of show where you have to listen in sequence. Sure, if you do listen to it in sequence, you'll understand a lot of the jokes that show up here and there. But I just suggest you go back, listen to episode one, start there. That'll set everything up. And then you can go to inloveoftheprocess.com and then choose uh, what kind of stuff that you want to listen to and make your way around that way. Uh, we have, we've got fucking hours of content at this point. So if you're bored and you're looking for something new, you found it, my friends. Uh, like I said, in love with the process.com. Check that out. I also want to send out a thank you to Gina because she canceled her yoga this morning in order for me to record the show in our COVID time period where we all have to share one space. Thank you, Beans. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Um, and um, I want to thank you guys uh, for making this show as big as it is. And, uh, I ask you, I implore you to make it even bigger. Tell your friends about it. Take the graphics that you like. If there's something that you heard on the show, repost a quote, uh, share it around. Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, all the new things. You know, let's all talk about it. Uh, and Liam will have the links below for everything. Uh, please click through on our sponsors because it's important in this time that they know that you're still looking. All right. That is it. Uh, I'm going to let you guys go. I'm going to start ranting and raving. Uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you next Tuesday. <laughs>